Welcome to the One Last Patch Cup. <laughs> no, keep that, keep that, that keep that. Okay. Podcast, podcast, a show dedicated to science fiction, fantasy, and history. I'm Michael. I'm Marie. And I'm Corey. We're all gathered in the same geographic location, so despite not having much of a plan of what we were going to do, we're going to record a podcast anyway. We have what? the opportunity. So, on the One Last Sketch blog, I regularly do a wrap-up end-of-year post. I already posted that. But I thought, hey, what about you guys? What about so that's us? where we're going to start. What were your favorite books, movies, films, related media of the year? Okay. Film is easy, because the film that I enjoyed the most this year was Arrival. Yes. Um, which we saw recently in Toronto, closely followed by Ex Machina, which we finally watched this year. Um, so it was a good year for sci-fi movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, at the, I'm going to tread slightly into spoiler territory. Um, if you know kind of the basic plot of a first contact story it's kind of a stock plot arrival uses that plot but it does some very interesting things with it so i mean it's it's an amazing movie um i would put it right up there with 2001 like it it will make Mm -hmm. you think but it will keep you attentive the whole time it was a great movie it's like if contact didn't have really bad actors in it it might be more like this. <laughs> Speaking of which, I did watch Contact this year, what? even though I didn't watch Arrival. I watched Contact at 1.25 speed. Okay. Uh, yeah. It was for my work movie group, mm. where we watch a movie, and then we talk about it. Was Matthew McConaughey more tolerable at 1.25? No. <laughs> <laughs> he's one of those ac- He's weird. He's one of those actors who, early in his career, was so bad he should have never gotten work. Excuse me, but he's kind of become good. Better. 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 Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the movie overall isn't bad, but it was definitely a slow, slow film. Yeah. Uh, especially following up on the first movie we watched from my work group, which was Cocoon. Mm-hmm. Don't know not, you don't know Cocoon? <laughs> that was like a B-horror movie, right? No, it is not a horror movie at all. Basically, yeah. alien pods show up in a pool... And it makes old people, they don't physically grow younger, but it rejuvenates them and makes them act like teenagers again. That's funny. (laughs) Oh, oh, on the way here, because obviously we're all in Edmonton because Christmas, well, sort of. We're all in Edmonton for holidays, and uh, uh, on Air Canada, you uh, get compensated for having to pay vast amounts of money for what shouldn't be that expensive by uh, having some movies you can watch. I watched Zootopia, which was great. <laughs> really good writing, actually. Really good. Highly recommend it. Yeah, I'm trying to think what other movies we've seen this year. Uh, Civil War was fun. Mm. Doctor Strange was fun. Again, typical mm. Marvel movies. You go in knowing they're going to be fun and not oh, much we else. Oh, we saw um, Ant-Man, and we also saw... Ant-Man uh, was awesome. Um, the R-rated one. Deadpool. Oh, Deadpool. Deadpool, yeah. I still haven't seen Deadpool. That's a good movie. I think Deadpool's great. I don't think Deadpool would have worked 10 years ago, um, simply because if it had come out then, the only people who would have cared about it would have been the Deadpool fans. I think the superhero movie genre has kind of gained enough steam that it can start parodying itself now in a way that makes sense. 
Whereas if that had come out 10 years ago, people would have been like, what is this? I thought this was a superhero movie. It's just weird. But now it's like, oh, look, he's poking fun at this thing. Mm-hmm. Even though that's what Deadpool has basically always done. Well, I flew Aaron North, which does not offer movies. Nope. Yeah. Or much. And I'm trying to think back over the year what movies really stood out. Oh, uh, I didn't really see much in the way of anything new. Did you see Sicario? <laughs> no. Ooh, we, we watched that this that year. Was that was really good. That's dark and depressing because it's ba- I mean it's not it's not based on a true story in the sense of adapting any one particular person's story at least I don't think it is but it's based on events that are very much happening right now in the world yeah. and they're just tragic and depressing and it's a brilliant movie but it will make you sad from the director of Arrival and also Maelstrom. that Maelstrom movie which you can listen to another episode of our podcast for us talking about that. I would just yeah. like to say, I didn't see Maelstrom by the time you guys did that episode, which is why I wasn't in it. I have since watched it. It is an amazing film. Like yeah. it, it's, it's one of those things where it shouldn't work, but it does, and it does in spades. Did we see Remember this year? Or was that last year? I think it might have been early this year. I think it was early this year. Oh, my yeah. God, that was such that was a sad movie. movie. It was. I enjoyed that. So out of stuff I watched, I can think Old Boy stood out as mm. being a pretty... The Korean version. Right? Yes, the Korean version. As just or, having a very good actor in the main role. Sorry to clarify, <laughs> Old Boy was a Korean film, right? It was yes. a Chinese? Okay. Yes, it was a Korean film. And a couple of days ago, I watched John Wick, which is about Keanu Reeves. Just somebody kills his dog and he doesn't like it. You know what? If you think about all the things people have gone on revenge missions for in movies, I think actually killing someone's pet it should be right up there with one of the great motivations. The, I know how attached yeah. I am to my cat. I would go full out Rambo on your ass if you harm, harmed him. The action choreography in that movie is excellent. Keanu Reeves is finally in a role that he's suited for. He doesn't have to act, you mean? Exactly. I was going to say, the, uh, the, the stoic, stoic badass, basically, is all he really does well. Oh, oh we also watched Finding Dory. <laughs> that was cute. That was cute. Not as good as Finding Nemo, but Obviously. it was still cute. Yeah. I did watch a lot of anime movies. So, <laughs> out of that crop, Grave of the Fireflies made me feel terrible. For <laughs> You're <week>. welcome. <laughs> I, I've seen several descriptions of Grave of the Fireflies where it's called the best movie you'll never want to see twice. Yeah. And I think I agree with that. I, I think yeah. it is legitimately one of the best films, one of the best narratives, and just one of the best pieces of art I've ever encountered. But it is so depressing. And yeah. it's it's not just depressing in the sense of, oh, wow, that was a sad movie. It really hits you hard. Mm-hmm. Like, you feel it for a while after watching it. And it's one of those experiences where it's so sad that it's actually profound. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I would really recommend everyone watch that at least once in their life. And in that case, people will ask, like, why did this have to be animated? But I don't think you could get that sense of the body... Mm-hmm. actually deteriorating yeah. in animation because you wouldn't do that to a child actor. No. Well, I think, you mean in live action. Yeah, yeah, you would not do that in a child actor in a live action film. That and would be I, considered yeah. cruel. I yeah. think some things just work better as animation. Like, there's a certain aesthetic that, uh, aesthetic mm-hmm. the movie has that I don't think you could duplicate in live action. And I think mm-hmm. it's less expected than too because cartoons are younger audiences, right? But it's definitely yeah. not a kid's movie. Well, no, no. E- even in the original Japanese, though, it was... Yeah, I cut a little snippet of an interview from the director, and his comment was that he, he was writing it and producing it for kids. He wanted Takahata. Yeah, he, he wanted to show kids what their parents went through in World War II. 
And so it, it's actually, weird as it sounds, very much meant to be a kid's movie. Yeah. And I mean, you can get into discussions about how one of the purposes of children's literature and children's media is to frighten children and thus facilitate their growth to adulthood. But like, I, I think mm -hmm. it does that quite well. Um, spoilers here, obviously, now. Um, I really do like how it sets up the whole, just ask if, we need, if you need anything, and then nobody's there to help them. That's kind of, to me, the big theme of the It's movie. also a tragedy in mm -hmm. that... If he had just apologized yeah. to the aunt. I mean, she was terrible, but yeah. Yeah. he could not, there was no way he could make it on his own like he thought yeah. that he could. I, I think part of it, too, um, again, I don't know too much about like immediate post-World War II Japanese culture, but I think, um, I think that character couldn't apologize. I think he was very much the kind of person who, because of all the militarism of the state, had a sense of pride drilled into him. Well, because his father was a yeah, his... admiral in the navy or mm -hmm. a captain or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. So that wasn't the only Studio Ghibli film I watched, but I feel it's kind of pointless to talk about Studio Ghibli movies when all of them are great. Are great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They're all awesome. <laughs> it, it, it's funny. I think like the one that's not rated good, or not rated, not rated good. good. Wow, good. two good thumbs up. <laughs> I think the one that's not rated very well, like the one that's actually considered only a mediocre to a bad movie, um, was done by Hayao Miyazaki's son. I discover Makoto Shinkai as a director, and he does these, he did some really excellent short films that I really liked, Voices of a Distant Star, mm. which is uh, takes the conceit of the time dilation effect of a high school girl and a robot goes off into space, but then is texting back to her then-boyfriend. Mm. And then as the time goes on and he grows older and the distance increases, and you don't think it's going to be heartbreaking, but it is. Mm. Sorry, Voices of a Distant Voices Star? Of, Voices of a Distant Star. Mm. He did everything on it, and the voice actors mm. were him and his girlfriend. Mm. So that was the first work he ever did. The other one, Five Centimeters Per Second, mm -hmm. explores the same themes, but without the... Mm -hmm science fiction trappings. It's mm -hmm. just three short films strung mm. together. Uh, very emotionally powerful. Mm -hmm. The other one, which might be... This one is kind of on par with Studio Ghibli to me, is The Girl Who Leapt Through Time, which is basically, what if Homer Simpson discovered time travel, is how it's being described. <laughs> so that Treehouse of Horror short where he actually does? Possibly, but this movie is about a high school girl who stumbles across... This ability to be able to leap and then go back in time mm -hmm. through the day. So she does it to do really stupid things to begin with. Mm -hmm. And then things get more serious as it goes on. But it's an extremely entertaining movie. Mm. Oh, we rewatched we re The Last Unicorn. So <laughs> I never had actually seen it to the end because I got scared of the bowl when I was a kid. And Have you read the book? Kid. Oh yeah, I've read the yeah. book before. I was... Kind of disappointed with the book, actually. I read it on a friend's recommendation. We're not talking about books. No, no. I, <laughs> we're talking about The Last Unicorn. <clears throat> I read it on a friend's recommendation. It was okay. It it's great. <laughs> See, it's one of those books where I find a lot of people love it, and that's fine. I just wasn't one of them. And then the movie was kind of fun, but a little bizarre at times. It has the... Because it was made by Rankin Bass. And it yeah. has some of their animation problems. Yeah. <laughs> you know, especially after seeing some really high-quality animation out of Ghibli, you go back to the TV animated movies here. It's, it's like, oh, man. It's just really funny to me that Mia Farrow is doing the voice of um, the unicorn, and the last thing I saw her in 
which wasn't this year, but the year before was Rosemary's Baby. So. Oh, well, and uh, <laughs> it's Jeff Bridges does the voice of the prince. The last thing I saw him in was The Big Lebowski. So. Yeah. Right, so continuing on with animation and anime type things, uh, moving into TV shows. Uh, I know where this is going. Yeah, so we do plan to watch Kill the Kill. But yes. first we felt we had to watch Gurren Lagann, which I quite enjoyed because I think Kamada's kind of great. And then I enjoyed seeing galaxies smash into each other. But I do admit that I think the first half of the show is a little stronger in the narrative. After a while, I get so superlative that I'm kind of like, I don't even think there's really characters. It's just flashing lights in front of me at this point. Well, I mean, the beginning of the show, I even said, I'm like, I get the sense this escalates pretty quickly. Um, it goes from poor kid in this kind of backwards village to leading a freedom fighter rebellion to overthrow the evil overlord. And then they do that halfway through the series. Sorry, spoiler alert. They do that halfway through the series. And it kind of works. Like, it was a fine, self-contained story. And then from there, it just goes off on this crazy, mind-bending, like, beings from across the universe trying to destroy us. And we're fighting in giant mecha that literally pick up galaxies and smash each other with them. It's like, okay, a lot of drugs went into the making of this show. Yeah, I like how they're fighting for it. They're totally disrespecting other planets when they do that. (laughs) See, I have the exact opposite opinion of these two here in that I like the second half of the show more than the first half. The first half was like... Okay, it's running along the similar lines of giant robot shows. Yep. And then, oh, we get to see the consequences of what happens afterwards. <laughs> I, I like that idea. I like seeing the consequences of a story, especially a stock plot, where it's like, oh, we must rise up and overthrow the evil king. I mean, that's great. A story that talks about the consequences of that is interesting. I just found Gurren Lagann went on such an acid trip that it was almost hard to follow. <laughs> So, Gurren Lagann was produced by Studio Gainax, which also made Neon Genesis Evangelion. Oh, really? Yes, yeah. but the people who made Gurren Lagann immediately left Studio Gainax afterwards because of all the problems involved mm-hmm. in the production there, mm-hmm. and they formed Studio Trigger. Mm-hmm. And I don't think there's anything I've seen by Studio Trigger that has been bad. Mm-hmm. I've enjoyed just about everything they've made greatly. Like Kill the Kill, mm-hmm. which is Gurren Lagann, but with characters you care about. Uh, also crazier in mm-hmm. some instances, and very much influenced by very old shoujo shows that had mm-hmm. melodrama cranked up to the max and terrible things happening to people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> also very much related to Project Eiko, which is an old anime movie. That mm-hmm. is also a lot of fun and includes the immortal line Revenge is sweet, 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 and you, Aiko, are going to die, die, die. <laughs> oh. Speaking of melodrama, we did just watch The Great Race last night. That was pretty funny, yeah. Going back to uh, Tony Curtis, Jack Lemon, and uh, Natalie Wood. So, yeah, just saying. Well, you know, we, it was great. Some it's con- the best three hours or 156 minutes of your life you'll ever spend. Some context. Um, Marie is always quoting this movie, and it's apparently a large part of her childhood. And so we watched it with her family yesterday. And um, I must say, for a three-hour movie, it doesn't feel like three hours. It's really well-paced. It's a lot of fun. 
It's ridiculously funny. There's a giant pie fight. Like, what more do you need? There's a sword fight. There's um, a... A car with a cannon in its front. There's a little dirigible. There's a submarine. There's a missile. There's... There's a saloon brawl. Yeah. It's got everything. Oh, there's a polar bear. It it was the kind of movie that could only be made in the 60s, really. Yeah, 1965. Slapstick. Wasn't well-liked at the time, but... um, I think it's great. I think it's it's one of those movies that's come to be regarded as a classic. Mm-hmm. Like, en- enough, even though critics may not have liked it, enough people apparently did to keep it going, so that... Yeah, 75% of the tomato meter. While we're on the topic of shows, we can do a little pickup on our web series mm. episode that we had, because Ruby is currently in mm. its fourth season. Mm-hmm. New animation software. Mm-hmm. People actually have expressions on their faces. Unfortunately, the... <sighs> Main director guy died in a... Anesthetic. Yeah, pretty terrible Severe allergy reaction. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what he contributed to that show was excellent fight choreography, and that is definitely not up to par Um, anymore, but they are getting better. I found the latest episode, it actually kind of found its way again. Like, I I found the first bit of the season, they were kind of setting pace... And figuring out kind of where they were going and what they were doing. It's kind of reached the midpoint in the season, and things have picked up. The plot's become a lot more interesting. Um, The fight scenes have gotten better. The character motivations are all starting to slot into place. And you just know stuff is going to blow up in a big way. Mm -hmm. So I I think that... um, Story and character-wise, it's definitely improved by leaps and bounds. I I think season four of Ruby, though, will definitely be known for having a stronger second half, based on what I've seen so far. Also... Members of Team Four Star are now part of the voice cast. Yeah! Great to see those guys getting some legit work. Because we haven't really seen many abridged series out of them this year beyond continued work, continued work on DBZ. So. Yeah, which is, is a lot of... What am I talking about? Yeah. DBZ abridged. Which is a lot of work that they don't get paid for. And yeah, people are always mad at them at how long it takes. It's like... It's basically, they do the voice acting, and then one guy puts it together. Like, give them a freaking break. <laughs> well, I think the other thing, too, is the nature of what they're doing. There's no way they can get paid for it, because the yeah. second they're getting paid, it's copyright infringement. Yeah, so it's it's a labor of love entirely. Meanwhile, none of the other shows we talked about have had future seasons, so we can't really pick up on mm. the other web series mm-hmm. that we were... Mm-hmm. Well, in in terms of um, TV shows this year, we watched... Um, Marie and I finally got around to... Jessica Jones. Jessica Jones. That was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, season two of Daredevil, mm-hmm. not as solid as the first one, but still really well done. Yeah, very enjoyable. I really, really enjoyed watching Foggy Nelson do his legal cases, which is sort of a problem when you're watching a superhero show. <laughs> like, be watching, oh my like, god, show me the legal stuff. Yeah, so I was like, his defense is tight. <laughs> great. Yeah, no, I'm back to <laughs> Jessica Jones for a sec. That <coughs> is really well done. Yeah, that was um, great. It's... What I liked about it, it's a strong female protagonist. Who's a dick. Who's a complete dick. Um, mm-hmm. But is not, for lack of, or at least didn't seem to me, for lack of a better term, to be just a man in drag. Mm-hmm. I find too often strong female characters, because the writers are all men, they just write a male character and slap a pair of boobs on them. And mm-hmm. it's like, that's not actually how a woman would react to some situations. And so Jessica Jones is very much a female character reacting mm-hmm. to largely female issues. I think she does. But she also kicks a lot of ass while she's doing it and is amazing. I'm just curious what you know about female issues, Corey. 
Did you, did you, did you just slap side some eyeing you down. Yeah, did you just slap some boobs on yourself? At, at the risk, okay, I'm, I'm walking to spoiler country here. Um, she is recovering as it's a victim. An unforgiving country. Yeah. It's a hard land to traverse. It's okay. a land of many brambles. Do you guys want me to explain what I mean or not? Uh, as a footnote to people listening, we have been drinking apricot beer. We are in fact drinking it at this moment. Alicat, apricot. You can't get it in in Ontario. Anyway, to clarify what I mean, um, Jessica Jones is the survivor of, amongst other things, sexual violence. And so a large portion of the season is her working through her own issues. Yeah, and that's great. And again, that's not to say that men can't be victims of those things. But typically, it's women who experience that kind of violence. So you've got a female character addressing what is commonly, or what is a common issue, or at least an issue faced by women. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I thought that was very interesting. And, and I think the fact that she spends the first half of the show in denial and getting drunk all the time mm-hmm. set itself up for some very good character development. And that actually, like, two of the other stronger figures in the show are both females, her friend and the lawyer. Yeah. The lady. Which is excellently played by Trinity. Can't remember her actress. <laughs> the actress who played Trinity in The Matrix. Yep. Yeah, she yeah. plays a lawyer in Jessica Jones. She plays an absolute bitch, and she does an amazing job of yeah, it. Yeah, she's so good. <laughs> yeah, so good. Well, if we're talking about tentpole TV productions, I did watch season six of Game of Thrones, mm. which is where we finally... The books are over. What do we do now? Well, it turns out we take storylines that we skipped in earlier books... I use that as the material until the last couple of episodes, mm-hmm. and then we blow up everything. <laughs> so I enjoyed it, but there are problems of, this is going to sound so terrible and nerdy, geography. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because we have characters shuttling to and from and across Westeros at speeds that are impossible in the Middle Ages. Dracula untold speeds? Yes, Dracula <laughs> untold speeds. And we all remember how drunken, what a drunken debacle that podcast was. And it was great. Yeah, it, it harms the believability or <laughs> suspension of disbelief in this show. Why didn't you Dragons don't, but... <laughs> I love how dragons don't harm your suspension of disbelief. I want dragons to exist. That's why. So is this the last I don't season? know if you do. No, I there's really one don't more. think you do. One more? So they one might more. unblow it up again? Uh, maybe. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I know there's very little motivation for George R. R. Martin to finish that next book anymore. But... Yep. Well, I think he's basically decided at this point that however the, the show ends is how he's ultimately going to end the book. Because I think it's been pretty much conce- I think he's pretty much conceded. He's written himself into a corner and just wants it to end. It's a Robert Jordan issue. He's just got so much inertia from too many storylines, too many branches. You need to start paring those things off. It's like having a garden where if you let your hedges overgrow, you won't have a garden anymore. You just have a solid wall of brambles. Then how are you going to get to the princess on the other side? Very profound. Um, that, well, what you really need is broadsword, but they don't make those like they used to as per Rocky Bullwinkle. They do make lawnmowers like they used to. You need the giant scissors that Yoko <laughs> <laughs> Matoy has in oh, Kill la Kill. <laughs> I, think, um, I think the problem George R. R. Martin's having is um, he started the Song of Ice and Fire series in the 90s. That's when the first book came out. 
and he's written himself into such a corner and it's become such a big thing and he's just sick of it. He, wa- I, I've seen interviews with him. He wants to write other stuff. He wants to write short stories, novellas. He's actually sick of the project, mm-hmm. but because of the state it's in, he has no choice but to pl- plot on. So it's, be- it, it's not this labor of love anymore. It's very much become a chore for him yeah. and he just wants it out of the way so he can move on with his career and his life. Let us also move on from that then. I was going to say, none of us, none of us read a George R. R. Martin book and considered it the best book we read of 2016. I've never read I, I did not R. R. read Martin. any George R. R. Martin in the past year. Um, mm-hmm. Neither have I. Nope. I've never read any George R. R. So if we're talking books, though. That's the point. <laughs> okay, so uh, in preparation for this episode, Michael made it appear that we were just talking about favorite books of the past year, so I've actually got a list. Um, Nerd. <laughs> well, yeah, we knew that. So, in no particular order, um, I read The Plague by Camus, or Camus, I can never pronounce his last name. Albert Camus. Um, That was great. Steppenwolf by Herman Hesse, which is now one of my favorite books. Um, Side note, so is Siddhartha, I just didn't read that this year. Uh, Collection of short stories by Anton Chekhov. I'm currently making my way through the collected short stories of Roger Zelazny. He is easily one of my favorite authors. His short fiction is incredible. I I should clarify. He wrote so much that a lot of his short fiction can be hit or miss. The stuff that's a hit, though, is amazing. And the stuff that's a miss is still at least pretty good. Whereas a lot of authors, I find you don't even have that. It's like their miss is just horrible. Um, China Mieville, for example. I read some of his short stories this year. Did not like them. Um, 1Q84 by Haruki Murakami. He is easily enough, again, one of my favorite writers. It's a really long book, but it doesn't feel like one. Like, it's not a slog to read by any means. It'll take you a long time, but every minute of it's enjoyable. And it's just, it's typical Murakami. If you don't know what that means, just pick up any one of his books. That'll give you a good idea. Um, Way to be obtuse, Corey. (laughs) <laughs> Thanks. Paradise Lost by John Milton. That was, you know, a classic but fun. Uh, Terrain in Hell by Stephen Brust. Um, it's basically if Roger Zelazny wrote Paradise Lost, it's awesome and hilarious all at once. Silence by Shusaku Endo, which is, if it's not out already, will shortly be out as a movie by Martin, Scor- Martin Scorsese. Um, it's a very sad but, again, very beautiful book, kind of like what we were talking about with Grave of the Fireflies. Um, the Master of Go by Yasunari Kawabata. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, again, great book. Very depressing, but also beautiful. And the last one on the list, Consider Phlebas by Ian M. Ian M. Banks. That's not everything I read this year, but those are my favorites of the year. Um, what's interesting about Consider Phlebas, I wouldn't say it was actually one of the better books I read in the year, but it was the kind of book where it was interesting and it caught my attention enough that I at least want to read more by the author. So I, I think in that regard, it could definitely be considered a success. A lot of Japanese authors. Yeah, I did notice that. Um, I think I'm turning Japanese. That turning theme Japanese is going really to continue. I think Murakami's a great author. Mm-hmm. Um, Silence, I actually found just browsing the bookstore. It's like I picked it off the shelf, I read the back, like, oh, that's cool, and it just happened to be a Japanese author. And The Master of Go I tracked down because I actually play Go, and I have some books on how to play Go, and it was recommended in one of them. Not that I have anything against Japanese authors, I should note. I just noticed that as Corey was listing off his stuff. So I also have a theme in my reading. <laughs> a lot of my reading didn't happen due to being a first-year resident for the first half of this year. Yeah, well, that's a dark time. Um, 
So, at that time, I did finish reading The Voyage of the Wyvern, which is by the pen named Murray Brennan, um, which is the third book in the, whatever that series. The Lady Something or whatever. Yeah, The Lady Something. It's Victorian dragon hunting. It's a lot of fun. It is the, it's, the trope is definitely starting to get worn out. Uh, it ends really suddenly. I still think it's it's worthwhile, though, and I'll probably read the next one. It'll have a dragon on the front cover, so I won't be able to help myself. Um, more thoughtful things that I've read have been The Checklist Manifesto and Being Mortal, both by Tolga Wande, a surgeon in the States. It's a lot about uh, medicine and medicine ethics and practi- practical measures you need to take towards making decisions both in healthcare and as a, a person who will eventually have to face the fact that you're going to decline and die. So I hope everyone has their advanced care plans made with substitute decision makers or at least a lawyer to execute that for you because it's really annoying when we physicians have to deal with that stuff. Anywho, um, I've read various articles about psychiatry. That's kind of par for the course. I've read a third of of a book by Foucault called The, The Birth of the Clinic. It is a slog, I will say. I'm not reading it in the original French. Unfortunately, my French isn't that good. It might make it easier to read things in their original language, but... Um, not for Foucault, it's not. Probably not. <laughs> you know, uh, Foucault takes pride in being as convoluted as possible, I think. Yeah, so it is it is interesting, though. Um, I do see how a lot of anti-psychiatry rose up out of his theory, for sure, because he's very much a postmodern, everything's constructed kind of a guy. Not quite. Well, but we can dispute this point later. <laughs> we can dispute this point, but so far in The Birth of the Clinic, he's talking about the construction of empirical um, empirical thought. Anywho, I'll finish reading it, and then we can argue about it at some point. Uh, Shake Hands with Death by Terry Pratchett, which is an excellent um, little piece about his point of view on um, euthanasia as a person uh, who is suffering with Alzheimer's disease. He, it was um, a speech that he did not himself deliver because he was too far progressed in his dementia at the time to actually be able to do that himself, but he did largely write it with some assistance. Um, and it's a beautiful piece of writing that I read at 3 o'clock one morning while on call. I highly recommend it for everyone who has to start dealing with concepts of medical assistance in dying or killing people, whatever you want to call it. Um, if you're mortal, it is recommended. Mm, Yes. I also read Rain in Hell. It's a really good book. Um, I've read various parts of the DSM-5 over and over again. Um, also the shorter Oxford textbook of psychiatry, now that I think about it. Sorry, for the non-psychiatrists or those not married to psychiatrists, the DSM-5 is the fifth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, correct? It's how the American Psychological Association maintains funding. Yeah. <laughs> Introduction to Psychotherapy by Bateman, Brown, and Petter. I uh, read that as a requirement. Um, it's actually quite a good little book on psychotherapy, if anyone is interested in psychology at all, um, or just to get a sense of what psycho- psychology is. It's, it's quite good. I read, a, in its entirety, the OSCE MCC QE Part 2 CFPC Certification Clinical Skills Review scenarios based on standardized patients. By Dr. Zeha Gao and Dr. Christopher Nogler in depth with a friend while studying for the LMCC Part 2. Which I passed! 
Again, non-medical people, this was a big licensing exam she needed to write. Cost two and a half grand, it's a scam. Anyway, and I'm currently reading Symptoms in the Mind by Andrew Sims, which is fascinating. It's an excellent piece of psychophenomenology for psychiatry. And it's really good if you've done any previous philosophical reading as well, as well as knowledge in psychiatry. So it being a very niche market, obviously, but uh, oh my god, it's amazing. So things that I'm hoping to read in the new year would be, you know, more novels. <laughs> I would like to return to that state of being. I too read a Haruki Murakami book, Kafka by the Shore. Oh, Kafka nice. on the Shore. Nice. That's a good one. Yeah, that was the last in my pile of Murakami books that I bought from the used bookstore. Uh, I don't know if there's much to say about it. It's a very much a metaphysical experience more than a narrative. Yeah. <laughs> And contains a nice piece of imaginary geography, which is the library that he takes up residence in, which is a place you want to exist. I will say the cat scene is horrifying, and if you ever read it, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Oh yeah, you need to warn people about that before you lend them the book. Because, yeah. yeah. <laughs> there is a disturbing scene involving cats. Really it. It's horrible and horrifying, but I'm still sure, a great book. I'm sure after I read it, I will pet our cat and feel better about it. On the theme of surrealist stuff, I finally got a book of short stories by Borges, The Aleph and Other Stories, Argentinian writer. Uh, stories collected from 1930s to 1960s. They, the translation was done in tandem with the author, and the idea was we will translate it not as a direct translation, but as if the stories were originally written in English. So you don't need to worry about clunky prose style going into that. But it's all very much fantasy stories trying to evoke mainly Burton's translations of the Arabian Nights, uh, early medieval Renaissance-style fantasy trying to evoke wonder, and they very much succeed in doing that. On the theme of reading, getting into Japanese media in a big way... <laughs> yeah, we, I should point out that Yuka and Mike previously thought that anime was ridiculous. <laughs> And he didn't want to have anything to do with it. Now look at this otaku over in the corner, this little anime nerd. So I did, in fact, read all 17 books of Spice and Wolf <laughs> by Isuna Hasakura, which is a, a fantasy about high medieval economics. And each novel in the series takes an aspect of economics and spins some kind of clever plot out of it. Which is impressive, quite frankly. <laughs> I think what's about like the depreciation of the dollar or something. Oh yeah, there's stuff about minting coins and uh, guild contracts, an entire book that's centered around contract law. <laughs> Lots of stuff about church, states, push and pull in terms of getting control of economic resources. It even resolves with a big... Well, I'm not going to say a battle, but a struggle in the Northern Territories over economic control. A lot of influence from the Baltic Crusades, which I didn't really expect in the later books. And that's <laughs> an area that was what I did my seminar paper in the last year of my undergrad. And I was introduced to that through anime. The anime series only covers a few of the books and then just ends, so yeah. you're out of luck. <laughs> unless a lot you... of anime series just end, yeah, fun you, fact, Michael. You have, to just, you have to get the books to find out how the story continues. <laughs> 
but they are a lot of fun. The other one I wanted to mention is Welcome to the NHK. Spice and Wolf has a big long review on my blog. Welcome to the NHK has a big long review on my blog. That one did become an anime series, but I think that's actually made it not reach the people mm-hmm. that it should because it got translated and published in a, by a Tokyo pop. Mm-hmm. So it gets shelved immediately in the manga section when it's really a literary novel. It's, <laughs> it's about uh, Hikikomori. He spent the last four years just in his room. Mm-hmm. He does not want to get out of there. He has no motivation, no hobbies. Mm-hmm. He's not an otaku because he doesn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> he mostly just gets high or drunk and tries to get out of the situation and keeps on failing until... A young woman is like, let's have an experiment where I'm going to make you stop being like this. But it turns out she has her own motivations, and this is all a very horrible idea. Mm. You've also read most of Attack on Titan, right? Yeah, I've read most of the Attack on Titan manga, which uh, I think is better than the show. I can't really comment. I, I know I'm going to draw a lot of crap from the internet for this, but I, I gave Attack on Titan the show a try. I was watching the subtitled version. I could not get into it. The melodrama was just too painful. So if I can ever come across the English dub, I might try it again. But if it's still too painful, I'm just going to have to give up on it. And I mean, it, it there's still form. lots of melodrama. And I think the reason I got through it as quickly as I did is I was alone and lonely in Hinton. And cliffhanger endings. I may may just read it, because from what I understand of the story, it does seem really interesting. It's just, again, the the way the show is presented, I I can't do it. (laughs) There was a point where I thought that the author wouldn't be able to pull off tying together plot threads, and in the latest books, he has been, and doing it pretty well. So that that alone is kind of impressive, considering how (laughs) long-running... Well, what these series often are. One thing um, I do find interesting about Attack on Titan is, again, snippet from an interview, um, apparently where he came up with the idea for the Titans is working in a... I think he was working in a bar, and they had a drunk customer. And he realized in that interaction that one of the most frightening things you can ever have to deal with is something that looks human but doesn't react the way a human reacts. And so that was the motivation or the inspiration for the Titans. And I think, I mean, hearing that, I'm like, okay, that's cool. Like, I want to like the story. I really do. Too much melodrama in the TV show. A little bit of a warning about the artwork, which a lot of people don't like. I find the artwork fine. It's a very rough... This is the comic? Of the yeah, show. in the comic, a rough kind of ink sketch style. Mm-hmm. Um, he does have problems with perspective, like a lot of comic book artists do. Oh! read a 75-year retrospective of Aquaman. Oh, yeah. yeah! That was great! That's going on your best of list, Marie. It was actually really fun! I was like, this is supposed to be the latest superhero ever. Let's buy this book and give it a shot. Actually, he's kind of great. He's got a really limited power set, got a good set of sensibilities, and he makes do! 
you know, I don't know why Aquaman takes so much crap, because the more interesting characters are usually the ones that have limited power sets. I think it's all the whales. Like, seriously, Maybe. the whales thing is really stupid. Well, because, again, the characters with limited powers need to be creative. It actually adds depth. Like, he makes a lasso out of eels. Like, it's stupid. Let me finish. It actually adds depth and conflict to the narrative and adds challenge to the character. Like, if you're Superman, where you can just invent powers on the spot, you can solve any problem. Now, granted, I'm sure some of the Golden Age Aquaman, like you said, making lassoes out of eels, is dumb. It is. But it does get better later on. Then it gets really 90s, and it's like, <laughs> I think the New 52 reboot was maybe a good idea. It's funny <laughs> how many iconic that. comic moments came out of the 90s, but I think the reason that happened is because the industry was doing so poorly, they were just throwing everything at the wall to see what stuck. And they ended up result. I mean, there's some iconic moments, but for every iconic 90s moment, there's a lot of crap. Yeah. Like, for every Nightfall or Death of Superman, you've got, like, a billion pages, probably, of just god-awful track. Yeah. On the topic of graphic novels, Friends with Boys by Faith Erin Hicks was very good. It's a Canadian comic artist. She does a lot of work now on other properties, but that was one of her earlier ones. It's just about a girl, her brothers... They've been homeschooled. She's going to her first year of high school. And there's a ghost. <laughs> I think I actually did read it this year on the topic of comics. One called the Puma Blues, or Puma Blues, however you want to pronounce it. Again, it's a very, kind of like we were talking about with Murakami, it's a very trippy, surrealist, like very bizarre approach to narrative, but it works really well. Like it's a very beautifully drawn comic like with some amazing nature sketches and it's, it's very haunting like it, it's it's one of those ones that really sticks with you in a good way but I, I can't really describe the plot beyond that because on the one hand it's so too complex to and on the other hand it's too simple to like not much seems to happen but it doesn't happen in such a bizarre way that you can't really get into it yeah, for ongoing series saga I think is back on the upswing with the latest issues that were released, because there was a period in there I was like, I don't know. Two about volume four of that, and I haven't been able to progress because I think I borrowed them from a friend, but what I read of it, I remember being really good, so I'm, I'm glad to hear it's doing well again. Um, there's a content warning on those, however. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's all about intergalactic space opera action, but there's other action involved in the story as well, and the artists are not afraid to show it. <laughs> as an example, um, those of you with a sensitive stomach, maybe divert your ears now. There is one comic in the series where a baby is born. It's an alien, so it's got a TV for a head, but the drawing is literally a full frontal view of it coming out the birth canal. <laughs> There's nothing gross about that. I think they intentionally draw it to be like all mucusy and slime covered, though. But babies are mucusy, mucusy and slime covered when they come out. Like that's just how they look. People just need to get over this whole birth is gross thing. It's fine. Honestly, you can tell through the doctor in the conversation. Done eight. It's fine. I know that the first volume was pulled from Comicsology for one of the panels, really? where Prince Robot the Fourth has gay porn playing on his TV head. <laughs> While he's killing people. Yeah. <laughs> Such a bizarre character. Oh, hey. Speaking of other things we've done, we also saw an excellent, um, we saw an excellent art show at the AGO entitled uh, Mystic Landscapes, which included 
great works from Monet as well as Vincent Van Gogh, um, uh, Lauren Harris, Emily Carr, and many others. At the which was a really interesting take on how the landscape as a as a fantastic um, entity and creating the story visually. Any comments you want to make? On yeah, that if, I, if I'm remembering correctly, the only Van Gogh painting they actually had, or they may have had more than one. They had more one, than one. Okay, the one that stuck with stuck with me. I think it was called the Olive Trees or something like yeah, that. And I, I don't understand why it's not considered one of his more famous ones. It's an amazing painting. Like. Mm-hmm. It's it's all these gnarled trees like on this background of green, like on this green background and it's just it's beautifully done like it, you stare at it and like Marie said you can see a story in it and you just want to sit there and kind of piece together what that is. I really enjoyed seeing the various Monet paintings that showed the same scene in different lights because Monet is a master of the use of light. My favorite painting is actually one called The Pool of Blood, and I can't remember the name of the artist. Oh, yeah, I remember that one. But it's a crimson pool next to a small shrine at a crossroads in a somewhat sparse forest, and it's a really foreboding yet compelling thing. Like, you want to see what's going to happen That's here. painted shortly before or after World War One, wasn't it? I think before. Okay. Yeah, that I'm one, not sure. That one was quite... Quite beautiful too. Uh, we also saw a glassworks exhibition oh, yeah. by Chihui, which is at, really cool at um, the Royal Ontario Museum. That was really neat. And we got to see a bunch of dinosaur skeletons while we were there. Nah, it's not art. Not My inner six-year-old came out though. Yeah, I know. But um, uh, we're talking about art things we've done over the year. Yeah, we got to see <laughs> Marie's favorite painting of all time, which was of course the West Wind. I hate that <laughs> so much. <laughs> Oh, Tom Thompson, I hate it so Yeah, so for, for those of you who aren't Canadian, The West Wind by Tom Thompson, it's a very iconic Canadian painting. It's actually quite nice. Marie just doesn't like it. It's so over- boring. Why is it so famous? It's so brown and green it's like and the Murdoch's boring. mysteries of Canadian art. Yeah, I know. Why not take Lauren Harris's, like, a decorative painting in yellow with the Friggin' blue spruces on or, the yellow um, background. There was an hilarious. Emily. There's an Emily Carr one, I think. It was like a chapel in uh, BC. the white chapel. It's yeah, called. Pa- painted. Um, she painted it in BC, and it's a picture of a church with like massive pines behind it. So I mean, just it, it's basically a typical BC scene, but done in this very nice impressionist style. It's surreal. It's getting to be a bit surreal, actually. Okay, in a surrealist style. I would say I did like the West Wind with a satellite, which was a pop culture retake on the West Wind that. Put in funky colors and put a satellite in the background. And I was like, because. this is great. That was great. <laughs> Stupid Tom Tom. Hate its work so much. Are you saying that White Horse doesn't have an art gallery there, Mike? <laughs> they do have an art gallery. It's just full of White Horse art. We didn't go to the Tragically Hips last concert. Sorry, guys. I'm not a hip fan. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's sad for Gord Downey, but I'm not a big fan of their music. So. Sad for Gord Downey that you're not a fan? <laughs> that's, oh, that's wow. Okay. Wow. Let me rephrase. Speak a lot I, of your opinion there, Corey. I'm not a fan of their music, but I can still be sad for what's happening to Gord Downey because a lot of people are and because it's very horrible and unfortunate for him to have to go out that way. Okay, there you go. <laughs> well, I was considered a big Canadian moment. <laughs> All right, well, I think that's kind of our art year wrap-up as far as we can 
As far as what we can remember. Yeah. yeah so I, I think the positive thing to take away from this is, as much as 2016 may have sucked, we at least got to enjoy some good things. Yeah. Yeah. So that has been our year in media and art. I've been Michael Wojcik. You can find me at onelastsketch.wordpress.com. This podcast is available on iTunes and Stitcher. Where can we find you? I'm Marie Gorshmarak. I'm found over at yatropexy.wordpress.com. I'm Corey Toke. I can be found on fromspeechfire.wordpress.com. And I'm the only one among these three who's on Twitter. So, at uh, one last sketch. I do not twit. Thank you for listening. Glad you made it this far. Woo! Bye. Bye. <laughs>